Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from, and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. I invite you to remain standing for the word from our scripture today, which comes from the prophet Jeremiah. It is important to remember that prophets spoke words that at times were hard to hear, and these words are hard to hear. Many people circulate Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, put it above things. I know the plans that I have for you. And that was a word that was spoken, but it's important to know when it was spoken. It's a word of hope, but it also was um, a word to remind the folks that they, um, there were going to be some consequences for their lives that didn't reflect that reflected that they did not put God as their highest priority. This passage in Jeremiah 17 is going to be hard to hear. It's going to be um, edgy. It's going to have some sharpness to it. And we're going to unpack the meaning and the imagery behind this concept of sin. So uh, I ask you just to be patient with it. And if it irritates you, give some space for God to bring some clarity as we unpack the meaning of the words. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord now. The prophet says, The sin of Judah is written with an iron pen. With a diamond point it is graved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their sacred poles, beside every green tree on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country, Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price for your sin throughout all of your territory. By your own act, you shall lose the heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed are those who trust mere mortals, and make their flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be a tree planted by water, sitting out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of the drought it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is devious above all else. It's perverse, and who can understand it? I, the Lord, test the mind and search the heart. To give to all according to their ways, according to the fruit of their doings. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together as you're seated now. God, help us to search and listen these scriptures to find where you are challenging each of our lives and the places where you encourage us, the places where you remind us that your grace is always greater than our own sin. And help us to understand this concept today of what the prophet speaks, not only to your people years ago, but directly to us today. So we pray, O oh God, in the name of Christ, because we've gathered in the name of Christ, 
and we will seek to serve and depart in the name of Christ. And all of God's people did say, Amen. Now this may be an odd text for us to drop in the middle of a sermon series on pursuing perfection. And as a reminder, don't get caught up in the word perfection. But we specifically grabbed it because the world is telling you all the ways that your life can be perfect and the ways you can accumulate things and these will bring relief, it'll bring you happiness. And as former pastor here, Jim Welch says, the media and the world, they lie to you every day. It's temporary promises. It's fleeting promises. And we lean into our Wesleyan heritage, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, when he said, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? Now, this word perfect in the Aramaic and in the Greek has this concept of wholeness, that there's nothing lacking. And so we recognize we're, we're on this path of holiness, right? But it doesn't mean that we're going to achieve this some moment, and then we check that box, and we never sin again, we never... We never fail to have struggles. No, it means that in these moments that we make ourselves so available to God, beauty happens. Let me tell you, I can predict now that you will see these beautiful moments of people being made perfect in love after Hurricane Ida. Because when all of the things of this world are stripped away, people see their neighbor as people and human beings. What we need is the same response of humanity responding to the work of the Holy Spirit without the hurricane. We need that same care for each other without all the travesty and loss. And so this is what we're, we're being drawn towards. And today, we want to ask just sort of that biting question, how does sin derail this process? Now, whenever I work with kids and youth, I say, what's the letter in the middle of the word sin? Can you say it out loud? I right? Now, we have this tendency to think of sin as maybe this sort of um, horrific thing that only certain things do, but I want to tell you something certain people do. We, we actually are subtly sinning along the way because the word in the Greek is, comes from an archery term. It means to miss the mark, and the word in the Hebrew has a similar meaning, which means to sort of miss the mark. So what we're asking is, how does sin cause us to miss the mark of what God wants? Now, one of the basic core theology of the church is that we were created in the image of God, and this is true. But we mar that image when we follow our own devices. So one of the foundational teachings of the church is called original sin. Some people call it the depravity of man. As we mentioned on Wednesday night, maybe you've heard the phrase, sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's a horrible phrase. We're sinners in the hands of a loving God, right? And we're created in the image of God, but we have this tendency to focus on only our own needs and own desires. I submit to you one simple example. I want you to imagine a three-year-old that you have been around. Have you got that child in your brain? No matter how cute they may look, do you have to teach that three-year-old to do right or to do wrong? What comes most naturally to a two-and-a-half and three-year-old? That you have to be taught to do right. It doesn't mean that this little child is a horrific little creature, though if you don't get them their nap, they can remind you of original sin on a daily basis, right? But what it means is we reflect that image of God, but it must be cultivated, right? There has to be a surrender of our desires 
There has to be a willingness to accept a value system that may not follow what we want all the time. This is what we mean by sin, this way in which we displace God's desires and follow the desires of our own hearts. Now, how was Jesus crucified? Arms open wide, right? So is your life open wide to what God wants to do? And when it's not, you miss the mark. Now, in the Hebrew understanding, if you look at these words, um, there's a beautiful explanation to think about it this way. There are two concepts of how this is borne out in life when you think about missing the mark. In the Hebrew understanding, the Hebrew people were nomadic. They were wanderers. They would move from place to place. And so in a Hebrew understanding, one way of thinking about this is if you're walking on a journey and you get kind of lost in your path or where you're going, you can pause. You can kind of determine what you need to get back on the path. We call that repentance, the forgiveness of God, the reconciliation of the relationship, and you can get back on the past. But getting off the past wasn't necessarily deliberate or could be. But you, you recognize you're in the wrong place and you want to get back on the right path. Another way of thinking about this is that you decide to leave the path. You make a conscious choice that you're going to make the path your own. You know the right way to go, but you're not going to do it. And this time it's a deliberate act. The way we understand this in the Christian lens is the sin or the choice of our own getting off the path and missing the mark, sin of omission and sin of commission. So there is a sin of what we do consciously and a sin of what we fail to do. So how's the prophet Jeremiah challenging the people? Well, what he's doing is he's using the image of a heart. You have to pick it up at the first and at the end. Now, I want to do a little bit of sort of nerd-out distraction here, okay? I like the NRSV translation here because it captures some imagery that is thematic in Jeremiah. Whenever you see the word engraved in Jeremiah, Jeremiah thematically is talking to the people about the ways in which are the people following what's engraven on image on the stone tablets of law, or are you opening yourself that God would write his law upon your heart? Look at Jeremiah chapter 31 to see how the prophet brings the swing around to say that God's going to write his covenant on the heart of his people. So anytime you see that word engraving, know that's, that's woven throughout. This is not just sort of a mic drop that you've sinned and you're in trouble and now you're in timeout forever. But this is a relationship of what God is speaking to the people. And on verse 1, there's that odd little phrase that God is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Is that just not weird? The horns of their altars. What is that? All right, here's the nerd out biblical dig. Ready? When you look at the altar of what was in the Hebrew altar, there would be horns protruding from the end. Now, this would be in the holiest of holies. You couldn't get there. The priest would stand as an intermediary, offer prayers and sacrifices, but everybody knew that there were horns protruding from the altar. There's actually a passage in Amos that God says, look, when my justice comes, I'm going to take the horns off the corners of the altar because if in some way you were able to get to the altar in the holiest of holies, and clasp the horns that would protrude from the end, nobody could do anything to you. Think of how we talk about sanctuary. Sanctuary is a sense, right, you're in a place where nothing can be done to you. And so this concept that's picked up is that 
God is going to engrave it on the hearts of what they've done and on the horns of the altar. So this imagery is that this altar stands in a place where the sacrifice and offerings for the sins of the people are offered. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. So God, in some ways, is already talking about bearing up the sin of the people. There's already this foreshadowing that God is knowing that there's going to be consequences for your sin, but I am going to be with you in the midst of this all. But verse 5 is where the turning point comes. And Jeremiah contrasts for us the difference between trusting in mortals and trusting in God. And this is where it applies to our lives. Do we trust what's happening in the world around us or do we trust in God? The imagery you see worn out in verses 5 through 10 It's like a tree planted beside the waters. Anybody remember what that may sound like? You can open up your Bible or your Bible app and look at Psalm chapter 1. The righteous are like trees planted beside the streams of water. Jeremiah's picking up this imagery, the idea that where you plant your life in proximity to God will determine that when the storms come or when the drought comes, are you grounded in God? Will your leaves wither because the things in the world go away? Will your life be miserable because all your hope is in toilet paper and paper towels? Or are you hoping and believing in God? Is your life and happiness determined by your 401k or where your job position is or what you achieve? Or do you see that your life is grounded in God? Where are you rooted? And this is the imagery that Jeremiah wants to cast before the people. And he uses this imagery in verse 9 and 10 that I want to kind of draw to a close and really focus on. He says this, the heart is devious above all else. Now the word devious here in the Hebrew isn't isn't really the best application of a word for us today. Uh, We see devious, and when you see devious in our culture today, it's sort of like there's an intent, right? There's If I say that I'm going to deceive you, I've already sort of had a premeditated thought that I'm going to misdirect you. It's hard to translate all these words. This word only appears once in Jeremiah, and it appears several times within the Old Testament, about, I think, 13 total. Um, The better word that that would carry the meaning of this, which is also crooked, is how it's used in another passage. The exact same word, but in its context, that a path is crooked. You remember that that, um, God says in Isaiah that I'm going to make the low places high, and I'm going to make the crooked places straight. So the same word in the Hebrew is God making the crooked straight. It's a contrast. Uh, it also carries the idea of it being sort of polluted. So, so really in verse 9, maybe a better way for us to understand, and here this is that, is that this heart that you have that was created and reflected of God, your creator, and all its good, it's given to being polluted. It's like that sponge that we talked about several weeks ago. It can't absorb the things of this world. It, it can't mislead you. Um, and really, this is a place where we need to really ask this question. Um, 
Have you ever heard the phrase, oh, just follow what's in your heart? Right? Now, there are times you can follow in your heart, but my friends, we need to be really cautious because your heart doesn't always lead you to places of righteousness and godliness. Your heart can lead you to really bad places. You see, your heart is right above your stomach. And what I know is on Sunday mornings, my heart is leading me back in to check and make sure everything's in the choir. But it's driven by that rumbling in my stomach that says, hey, maybe the choir didn't eat all the donuts that were brought to them this morning. (laughs) And after all, you did ride your bike yesterday. You're entitled at least one, maybe three, four, five. Right? and, And how often do you see people who compromise their ethics because they say, well, it was in my heart, you know, it was. You just can't simply say, hey, I I trust God. I'm going to follow my heart. It's always right. That's not true. Your heart's not always right. In fact, the biggest challenge is that that we need to let our hearts be held accountable and challenged by God's word. We need to bring our hearts to forget. Think of these words that Jesus talks about when he talks about heart. He says, let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. In John 14, don't let your heart be driven by fear. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is challenging the people who are thinking one thing in their minds and doing another thing in their lives. And he says, hey, whatever's in your heart is what you do. It's reflected in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5. Trust the Lord your God with all of your heart heart. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put with them, and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So the writer of Hebrews is picking up this imagery that the metaphor, the word, whatever you want to do here, the spiritual parallel when we fail to be receptive to the leadership of the God who loves us in Christ in the work of the Holy Spirit, we have a heart of stone. And you know exactly what that's right. Because when you see somebody do something that appears to be mean, you say they must have a cold heart. Or if you see someone who is generous and kind, they have a warm heart. Or when you see there's something broken, you know it's a heartache, like what we feel in things we pray for. So Jeremiah is saying the heart can be infected, if you would. Uh, the heart, there's no vaccine against sin for the heart. It can be, uh, it can be polluted. It can be, it can be perverse. It can mislead you. I mean, how can anybody really understand this? And then verse 10 says this: I, the Lord, test the mind and I search the heart. When we think about making our lives available to God and what God can do through the work of the Holy Spirit in his transformational work, it's about what kind of path are you on. I rode some miles yesterday in the hotter than hell hundred. I only rode 25 miles, no big deal. It was pretty easy. It wasn't hotter than hell in Wichita Falls yesterday. It was a pretty mild day. I think the Catholics were in charge because it felt more like purgatory than hell. So it wasn't too bad. But there's a spot, and I usually will ride like the 100K because uh, I'll train for it. I just didn't train early enough this year. And um, about four or five years ago, I was was not paying close attention as I was riding. And and my intent was to ride the 100K. So if, if you're a mathematician or you know anything, 
you know there's a difference between 100K, which is like 62 miles, and the 100 mile, which is like 100 miles. <laughs> and there's like 38 miles difference. Now, here's the other thing you need to know. Um, I know that when you look at me as a pastor, you probably look at me and go, man, that guy cycles. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, I know that's not the first thought that comes to your mind. In fact, I even had Beth Whittier. I said, she said, oh gosh, how can we pray for you? I said, don't pray for me. Pray for my tires. <laughs> I told the, the stitching club on Wednesday, pray for my tire. I had a whole, pray for my tires because if my tires hold up, we're all good. I wasn't paying great attention and, and, and I was riding this route and and did you know there's weight classes for cyclists? <laughs> there is, seriously. You can actually go on HH100 and you find out on the trail rides, they break it down. So here's your classifications, things you probably thought you would never experience in a prophetic message from Jeremiah. <laughs> Useless trivia that makes me feel different about myself. If you're up to 200 pounds, you're just considered a cyclist. So all you flat bellies, you're just sort of nomadic cyclists. You're a nobody, you're generic. However, if you're 200 to 220, you're a Clydesdale. <laughs> if you're 220 to 250, you're a super Clydesdale. If you're over 250, well, I call them the pachyderms. <laughs> I started cycling as a pachyderm, and I'm proud to say I'm in the super Clydesdale ranks now. <laughs> that specific amount is none of your business. <laughs> and here I was. I trained, and I was going to go on that 100K, and I didn't pay close attention. There's one turn if you miss, you now are on the 100-mile route. And I found myself on the 100-mile route that I did not intend to be. And not only was God with me, so was the guy I was talking to. And we found ourselves in one of the hottest rides in record, picked up by the sag wagon at 48 miles out because the temperature had already gotten over 100 degrees before noon. And this guy had an instrument and he measured the pavement. It was like 137 degrees in the pavement. It was just, that year it was, hotter than hell. <laughs> Friends, there's a moment in your life, no matter how hard you train, how hard you've read, how hard you've been intense in your spiritual life, you're going to miss the sign from God and you're going to be on the wrong route and you're going to feel it just like I did. This is what Jeremiah is saying to us, that your heart must be open to the movement of God. And sometimes that is a corrective word. It is a convicting word. Because reality is, if we come to church and think, oh, we're all just basically really good and I really don't need to change anything, then why on earth does Christ dying for the sins of the world if we're all basically good? Right? There's a whole theological depth that we need to pursue here to understand, yes, we are created in God's image, we are made in God's image, we reflect God's image, but in the words of the Charles Wesley hymn, Love Divine, All Love Excelling, we constantly must ask God to take away our bent descending, Alpha and Omega B, into faith is this beginning, and set our hearts to liberty. We are created in the image of God, but too often our choices mar that and they turn inward when we're invited to live an outwardly focused life. So friends, I want to ask you about your own choices that you make. Have they gotten you off the path? 
I want to ask you, are there places where you need to bring to God today and say, God, these are the places where I know I'm off the path in my sin, my choices have harmed and hurt others, I ask for forgiveness. And are you seeking reconciliation with those who your choices may have impacted? Do you also have a part of your life in which you experience that you carry wounds in your heart from the choices of others? And can you bring that to God saying, God, I need you to heal me alone where you can because maybe the person who's wounded you or harmed you either doesn't recognize it or doesn't care. And you've got to decide what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Are you going to carry it around like a weight are you going to give it over to God and ask for that healing touch? Are you going to listen for God in silent moments in the reading of Scripture? Are you going to stop the noise of the room so that, uh, of the world so that you can make room in your heart so that you can hear and trust what God's Word says about you rather than what you think about yourself? Because remember verse 10, I search the heart and the mind. When we think about what we are pursuing, the focus of today's sermon was to put on the table of conversation this thing called sin. Not in a way that makes an immediate reaction that, that makes you walk away, but, but introduces you to the subtle nature of sin that draws us away, almost as if the devil went to Bath and Body Works and got some really nice scented fragrances and just gently lures you away. And before you know it, you're on the wrong path. And you only really meant to ride 62 miles. And now you're committed to ride 100 and you cannot make it. That day, the grace of God showed up in an old beat-up F-150 King cab and a trailer behind it in a flatbed. Swallowed my pride. Do you know what the worst thing for a cyclist to do when they go ride? And it's the largest ride in the United States of America. It's the Hotter Than Hell 100. Do you know most embarrassing? There are two embarrassing moments in the Hotter Than Hell. Well, actually, there's three. Number one most embarrassing moments is you fall at the start because you forgot to unclip. Yeah, that, that's pretty bad. I mean, you haven't even started, right? The second is you get brought in of an injury because you forgot to unclip and you tipped over. I mean, I'm not talking about the racer. Look, you can tell who the racers are. They're this big around. And they go like this. <laughs> and the helicopters go get them because they're like going 30 miles an hour. No, the second most embarrassing thing is actually you fell over at the rest stop because your legs are too tired and you got gravel and you can't go on. Or... But the worst moment, the worst moment is when you just simply... Don't have it in the tank, and you got to call in the sag wagon, and you ride the flatbed of shame. <laughs> and you're coming in, and all these people got their little medals and doing all that stuff, right? And here we are going, uh, oh, what happened? You know, and they go, oh, do you really have to ask that, what happened? But you got to get past the shame, and you got to ask what your need is. You've got to get past worrying about the mask that you're trying to hold up for what everybody else in the world thinks about you. And you've got to ask, what do I need to be made whole? What's the unsettledness? Where do I need to listen? Where do I need to be challenged? Where in the community of faith can I find words of encouragement and words of correction? Where in the midst of a world that tells me I'll be happy by how much I can grasp 
will I commit to be a part of a community of faith that says, how can I serve and give? And in this moment, then we understand we are created in God's image. But sin is a subtle thing that makes us drift away from God. And it's found in the things that we fail to do when we know we should and the things we have done. But here is the great, it's not good news, it's great news of the gospel of Christ. God always offers us forgiveness. Extends to us each in Christ the opportunity to be forgiven, to get back on the path. But it requires our willingness to participate, to make different choices, and to have a different trajectory of our life that follows the wounded healer of Galilee, Jesus the Christ. And I want to conclude with the imagery that was popularized by Henry Nouwen in his book, The Wounded Healer. I was enamored with this book early in my theological training and then was, um, was challenged by a commentary that I think takes Nouwen's concept and makes it even better. Nouwen says that we are wounded healers, that we don't have to be made perfect, that by our wounds God can move and heal the world. But a commentator said, we need to break down this imagery because if we think we do the healing, we aren't wounded healers. The commentary said, maybe we're just the walking wounded. And I like that imagery better. And I want you to know that you don't have to have a perfect life. And one of the best ways that you can redeem the wounds or even the sins of omission and commission is to ask God to awaken you to those around you, people who may be on a different path. And it's not your job to save them, but maybe God has burdened your heart to just be in relationship with them, to be in conversation with them. And all you need to do is one simple thing, share with them what God has done in your life, where Christ has found you, and helped you get on back, back on path. The world's got enough folks that portray an image of Christianity as a perfect little story and a perfect little life. Everything is wonderful. But what the world needs, I believe, is more people who say, the world is broken. There are broken places and people and there are broken relationships. And still God's grace is with us. Still God's strength gets me through. And it's perfectly good to say, that's a good question I don't know the answer for, but I know that God has brought me through. Our closing hymn of faith today is going to reflect that in a few moments. Horatio Spafford wrote the words, it is well with my soul. Now, it can take about 30 minutes to describe to you the full background of Horatio Spafford's, it is well with my soul. Google it after church. It is incredibly inspiring. The short version is, Horatio Spafford had sent his wife and three daughters ahead of him uh, over the ocean, and they died in a shipwreck, and when she was found, um, she was unconscious. She was able then to telegraph back and say, all is lost, I alone am saved. And then as Spafford made his way across the ocean, 
they came to the approximate area where so many lives were lost. It was the largest loss of life prior to the Titanic. And Spafford pins the words in a place that is born and remembering so much grief. The chorus in the verses of, it is well with my soul. So when we sing this hymn, would you know that it should be for us a song of revival that God is in the brokenness. God is in the pain. God redeems the pain. God brings beauty from ashes There's nothing that you can do or have done that will reverse the resurrection. There's nothing you have done or will do that will keep God from loving you in Christ. And there's nothing that you have done or can do that can keep you from getting back on the path except a reluctance to listen and go where God leads. But friends, God's grace abounds. Remember several years ago, the phrase used to be said is the pastor would say, God is good. And the people would say, all the time. And the pastor would say, all the time. This is true. God's grace is good all the time. And all the time, God's grace is good.